All right. Before you get seated, we're going to read the scripture. So stay standing for the three of you that are standing. And for the rest of you who sat down, come on up. Uh, good to see you all this morning. Um, I love when people are so involved in each other's stories that they just won't stop talking. It's a gift. It's a gift. Um, Welcome to Riverbend. Uh, we are going to get started in this week's teaching. Uh, we have a passage. We're starting chapter three. We've been off for a couple weeks. So if you look at the screen here, we're going to read uh, the passage of scripture today. It says this, Galatians chapter three, verse one. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? On that encouraging note, why don't you grab a seat? <laughs> Always challenging to start a teaching moment on a really stern rebuke. So we're going we're gonna to work on that. Um, in the New Testament narrative, if you're familiar at all with the Bible, uh, there's an obscure figure that we know little about, but I really believe we can learn a lot from. And just to give context, there's only actually just a few sentences ever even written or recorded about this person in the scripture. And that person is a man named Demas. Now, Demas had at one time been one of Paul's fellow workers. That's Bible talk for like he was really in the club. Like he was with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and others, meaning he was in the inner circle of what Jesus was doing. He was a full-on Jesus follower preaching the gospel. He was all in. And there's also evidence that this man, Demas, was with Paul during his second imprisonment, which is just a further way of saying, like, he was so committed, he was literally willing to go to prison and to die for what he believed. But then all of a sudden, we don't know all the details of why, but something happened. All of a sudden, this man, Demas, abandons Paul and abandons the ministry, and he, like, leaves town like some of your friends did moving during COVID. One day they were here, and the next day they were not. Montana and Idaho is happy to receive them. Um, why, is it, why are those the two places? Everyone's like, we're out, we're going to these places. Or Florida, you know, that's the other one. Ooh, lots of Florida. Tennessee, just not here. Just not in your neighborhood where they once were with deep relationships. Anyway, so this is what happened. This is all that's written about him. 2 Timothy 4.10, and check this out, this man Demas. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Now, it's implied that Demas didn't just merely leave Paul and his friendship and his connection, but that he actually abandoned him, like left him high and dry. Demas's bailing was not only spatial, but it was actually even more importantly spiritual. He left his faith. He packed up all of his belongings, and he left to Rome because he fell in love with, as the Bible says, fell in love with the world. Or in other words, he chose the value system of the world and what is prioritized in that space over the kingdom that he was preaching. So Demas, right here, says really clearly, loves the things of this life. And I don't know about you, but I can really relate with Demas. I feel close with Demas. Uh, 
I like good food and drink. Anybody else? Yes? Thank you. Thank you, Moses. Thank you. Uh, I enjoy burritos. Uh, I enjoy adventures. And I'm just hoping you buy me one. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, I'm, I'm dropping that hint. Yeah, Tuesday. I'm, I'm waiting for it. Uh, I enjoy adventures, right? Like, I enjoy doing crazy things, and I enjoy expensive things. My wife and I always have this joke, like, which one do you like? And the one she always likes is always, I don't know, thousands of dollars more, even if it's inexpensive. It's always the most expensive one that we like or she likes. I enjoy ringing, like, the most out of life. Anybody with me? You, like, like living life. I overdo everything by nature. My motto is, like, one is good, 2,000 is better. Like, it's always better. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul is actually recalling this painful memory as he's writing to this Galatian church. You have to remember, he's writing this after the Demas had already left and been hurt personally. But he also saw what happens firsthand when somebody who knows God specifically falls in love with the world and their life is then destroyed. But if you know this, and I know this, Demas' story is not an isolated event by any means, is it? Like, how many of us love the things of this life, right? We do. And this story plays out today, even with different spiritual leaders of our day, blowing up their lives for the love of this world. In the past year, if you have been paying attention to the news cycle at all, there have been all these new reports, and some existing from the past, about leaders who are known for their faith and bringing people into the kingdom, similar to Demas, uh, who are just like completely failing. You have guys like Ravi, Ravi Zacharias who was an effective apologist for the kingdom, bringing so many people to know him. And he dies in this disgraced way, mounting as evidence shows a bunch of sexual abuse and using money from the ministry to like pay for his double life. You have Carl Lentz, who's a pastor of Hillsong, New York, who had a six-month-long affair that they decided, let's document this on Disney, or Disney Plus, Discovery Plus, for people's entertainment, right? This is a full-on docu-series on Discovery Plus. You have, all of a sudden, this year, a podcast come out, comes out about Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll and about his failure that basically psychoanalyzes his abuse of power and why this is happening. Alleged abuse, spiritual abuse and manipulation. You have Bob Coy, who's the pastor of the largest Calvary Chapel in the world, which is located in Florida, found to be having an affair with the secretary and child abuse, power struggles. I mean, I don't know about you, and I know this is a sobering moment. We're supposed to be happy, but this is the tone of the day that we're in. It's Galatians 1, 3 verse 1. What happened? I mean, how do we go from being a person who's supposed to be an elite follower of Jesus, setting an example to, like, falling so far? The first thing I want to say is this is heartbreaking. These are brothers and sisters losing their way. And we could argue, after listening to the scriptures, they were trying to complete in the flesh what was begun in the spirit. And I say this with sober judgment. I don't say this with judgmentalism at all. The scriptures are really clear. Take heed lest you fall, right? This can happen to any single one of us. So if you feel elevated, that's the wrong posture here. It's not the right posture. It is we need to listen and live in sober judgment, as Romans 12 says. Because here's the deal. Past faithfulness is no guarantee of future faithfulness. And I want to sit there for just a second because this is easy to buy into. That I was godly three years ago, four years ago, ten years ago. And that should like have a carryover effect. At least I would hope. I don't know about you, but ten years ago, I had way more time on my hands. Anybody else? Ten years ago, some of you were four. So that doesn't really count. But I mean like in general, like ten years ago, it would be easy to say, yeah, I have some more time on my hands. I can walk with Jesus. I, I had more time to be in his presence, to contemplate, to think about, right? Past faithfulness is no guarantee of future faithfulness. 
it's an ongoing day-by-day thing. So what's going on here? What happened to Demas? What happened to these fallen leaders? And I think Paul is really gracious to try to help wake us up and help us in the way of Jesus. And so we're going to try to make sense of what's going on. We're going to cover just two things today very briefly. Uh, I want to first talk about what is Paul's warning about, and secondly, what does that mean for us? So what is Paul's warning in this passage, and what does that mean for us? So first, if you uh, remember just a few minutes back when we started that really encouraging part of Scripture, uh, it says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, this was like letter form, so imagine they're getting a letter in the mail. They're like, oh man, Paul, the guy that planted this church, this is legit. We're getting a letter from him, and they open it, and it says, you foolish Galatians. Now, this is, this is Bible talk. for like This is some pretty intense Bible talk. This is like expletives in the scriptures. Like This is intense language. He's not happy. Now, to understand why Paul starts the chapter this way, we have to just do just cover three quick things. Context is so important when you read the scriptures. And it's important to know how to understand what he's saying. So there's three things that are going on in in the background that you need to understand so you're not so alarmed by what he's saying. There's three things going on. First, there's false teachers in this Galatian church. And they're preaching what Paul calls a different gospel, which is basically no gospel at all. And then, secondly, there's opponents that are trying to discredit Paul's authority. They're saying he's not legit, he does not have credibility, he's on his own authority, basically trying to undermine him. So then, thirdly, Paul basically has to do all of this extra work by trying to explain that his authority in the gospel he's preaching is actually from Jesus, not from man. So that is the backdrop. There's false teaching, they're trying to undercut his authority, and there's all of these background things about him basically needing to say, no, 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 I, I am legit. I am, I promise, legit, like from Jesus. So he starts out this letter with, you foolish Galatians. Now, you may be thinking, what was the false teaching? The false teaching was simply this. It was that it's not enough to trust Christ for righteousness. That's what they were preaching, that it's not enough to just trust Christ for righteousness. So, and just so we're clear, that is false teaching. We can trust Christ for righteousness. We actually can. And the heresy that was going on and why he was so vigorous in his language was not so much related to how the, that Galatians or anyone else started their Christian life, but it was how they lived it out day in and day out. It's how they brought their faith to completion was the argument. The Galatians had begun to be sucked into this bad false teaching. And Paul is trying to say, listen, wake up. Your actions are contradicting what you say you believe. You say you believe Jesus, but you're living very contrary. Anybody else feel that sometimes? Like, I believe Jesus, but my life doesn't always line up with that, right? We try to do it in our own power, and he's trying to get their attention. Please listen. It's not in your own strength that you can complete your faith. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. So what happens really clearly right here is he asks a series, if you go back and read it, he's asking a series of rhetorical questions and giving us no answers. It's quite frustrating. But if you go a couple chapters forward, he actually gives you the answer to the rhetorical questions he's asking. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 5, he just says this. But we have the true hope that comes from being made right with God. And by the Spirit, we wait eagerly for this hope. And that last line, and we by the Spirit. And that was the tension point that so many people were arguing over. Is it by your works? Is it by the Spirit's work? And he gives the answer here in Galatians 5. And the point of this verse is that the only way to be truly righteous is to wait with the Holy Spirit. It's not by the flesh. It's by faith and not by works. 
Now, this isn't a whole teaching on faith and works, but we do have to mention a few things about this. The main point of this passage, but also the whole book, is him trying to teach that very thing. So Paul's trying to teach us how to live through the Spirit, by faith, rather than through the flesh, by works. And what he does in this passage is helps the Galatians see why their actions are actually foolish. And you, you see verse 1, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians. And then if, if you didn't get the idea, verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish? Like the whole text, if you read that again, it's just so smug, isn't it? It's like, what are you thinking? Like you are so ridiculous, right? He says, Who has bewitched you? I don't know if anyone said that to you recently, but I would take offense to that. Like I would not be pumped about that. He's saying you're acting as if someone literally cast a spell on you. It's like Harry Potter all over the place. It's like you've been hypnotized. He says you're being essentially irrational. You're out of touch with reality or even mentally drunk. Now, because of neuroscience, we actually have a name for what it is when someone is really out of touch with reality. Um, and, and don't like insert like some crazy uncle that you have or whatever. Like, uh, neuroscience has helped us understand that there are actual things that go on in the brain when someone is literally irrational, out of touch with reality, mentally drunk, like the Galatians were from Paul's words. And it's something called uh, cognitive dissonance. Uh, cognitive dissonance is a term, don't worry, I'll give you all, I will explain everything, so if you're new to this, you'll understand it by the end. It's a term for the state of discomfort that you and I feel when two or more modes or ideas of thought contradict each other. Now, if you are like me, you go, neat. Uh, but what does that actually mean? So let me just give you a story to illustrate my point. Um, there was a neuroscientist named Michael uh, Gaznica in New York City. Um, and he tells a story about one Saturday morning when he was going through his rounds and he uh, met a hospital patient in, uh, in his office. Now, he actually was going through his rounds in the hospital. And he comes by a room and he knows he's supposed to meet this woman. And he knew that, all he knew from his char the chart was that the woman was completely healthy, but she did have a lesion on her brain. Now, other than the lesion, this woman was perfectly healthy, both physically and mentally. She had passed a battery of all of their cognitive tests with flying colors. They were like, she's legit, she's here, she's mentally stable. Now, when he entered the hospital room, she was sitting up in bed, drinking coffee, reading the New York Times, normal Saturday morning. And after about 15 minutes of the standard diagnostic questions, Michael just asked her a simple question. He says, so where are you? And looking straight, him in, straight at him in the eyes, she responds, uh, doctor, uh, I know you're not going to believe me because the other doctors don't, but I'm actually in my house in Freeport, Maine. And he was a little taken back, obviously, because he knew that they weren't in her house. And Michael followed up with an an her answer with, um, well, if you're in your house in Maine, he's such a nice guy. Like, I would have been like, hey, listen, you're crazy. I'm going to go. But no, he like literally says, hey, check this out. If you're in Maine, how do you explain the bank of elevators outside your door? And without hesitation, almost immediately, she answers, doctor, you have no idea how much time and money it cost me to have those installed. And the thing is, she was absolutely serious. This is not a made up story for her laughter here. This was really, this was happening. She was making it up as she was going along, but completely believed what she was saying. Now, Michael believes that other than this lesion, this woman is no different than the rest of us, that she's honestly in many ways okay. And what we commonly call reason, he believes, is a story that we sometimes spin to resolve any cognitive dissonance in our own mind. 
Now, in this case, between her belief, it was her belief that she was at home and the physical reality of the bank of elevators. But what is it for you? And my point with sharing this story or even bringing up cognitive dissonance is simply just to say that we do this. Have you ever been the enemy of your own story? Probably not. What happens when you get fired? Who becomes the bad guy? Your boss, the system, the coworker, the person. It's really hard, unless you have a lot of self-awareness and humility, to sit there and go, I was really a part of that problem. I didn't pull my weight. I was pretty lazy. I was always late, and my boss just didn't like me, and I didn't like that, so that's why I got fired. Like, most of the time, that's not what happens. We have a hard time accepting that we sometimes are not always in the right. Now, that's just one example, but when you take this idea of cognitive dissonance and you apply it to faith and in the arena of faith, and your ideas and beliefs, that's when you actually have something to worry about. Either you change your idea or belief or you change your way of living, but the point is, and Paul's making this really clear, you can't live in the contradiction. Your brain simply does not hold space for you to live in an alternate reality all the time. And when we can't comprehend or understand an idea that's just too big or different from what is known to us, we become out of touch with what's real. Paul saw this, and he is spending the majority of this book trying to basically tell the Galatians, this is what's real, and this is what is not. Simply put, you and I do not have the power within ourselves. Our faith cannot be completed in the flesh alone. Now, before we get onto what this means for us, I just want to highlight a very important verse of this passage. It's verse 3. And Paul just simply says, are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Now, if you were uh, following along when I was reading this, this verse most likely stuck out to you in some ways because I think in many ways we resonate with this. Uh, oh, Spirit and flesh, I get that. Like, oh, what's going on there? And I want us to just consider this really carefully because it really actually has great impact on our future. Now, this warning, just so you know, in verse 3, is not directed to those who don't know Jesus. It's actually written for those of us who know Jesus, who are now in danger of trying to live this Christian life in a way that nullifies grace and leads to destruction. It's for us who know better, some might say. And the point of this verse is that we must go on in the Christian life, in the way of Jesus, in the same way that we started it, by faith filled with the Spirit, relying on his absolute power and authority in our lives. The heresy was that basically they said, hey, you can know Jesus by faith, but that's not how you actually grow in your faith. It's by you taking your own power and your own authority and you make faith happen. You do it on your own. You carry the weight. One modern form of this heresy is God helps those who help themselves. Have you heard that before? And if you buy into that way as an advancing in the way of Jesus, you have put works where faith actually belongs in your life. And for you and I, people who know Jesus, faith is the only response to God's word which makes room for the spirit to work. If you don't believe God exists, right, it's absolutely void in many ways. There's no power. And our only natural response to true faith is genuine work. But we're not gaining faith by our works, and order is really important there. It is out of the overflow of love for God that we step into good works fueled by faith in the Holy Spirit. The Galatians were being told to live by works, ultimately placing the power in themselves. So 
with all that in mind, with all of that Paul is say, saying, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for you and me today? I just want to give you a few observations before we go. Uh, Demas, as we opened up with, he fell in love with the world and it ruined him, right? It ruined him, his relationships, and most importantly, his connection with God. And I honestly believe if we were to slow down just for a moment, this is a really important warning for us, uh, especially for the time that we all exist in. Because I don't know about you, it's really easy to actually, more than ever it feels like, I've never been uh, alive in other generations, but it seems like from all the history we understand and where the world is going, that the world, the flesh, the devil, this three triune situation of where we fall so short and what Demas fell into is more accessible than ever. It feels very, very easy to just step into an alternate life. And First uh, John chapter 2, you've heard this before. Here's a little different version to help bring alive some of the wording. But it says this, don't set the affections of your heart on this world or in loving the things of this world. And this was Demas's problem, right? The love of the Father and the love of the world are incompatible. Think of cognitive dissonance, right? For all that the world can offer us, which is the gratification of our flesh, the allurement of the things of the world, and the obsession with status importance and importance. None of these things come from the Father, but from the world. Now, I know this, this hits, it should, because this is exactly what happened with Demas. He had these two competing forces. This is what Paul is trying to say. You have these two competing forces, and if you give in to one, you will fail in the other. So this can happen to us. And I think one of the most important ways for us to honor the text of Galatians chapter 3, 1 through 5 that we're covering today is to just slow down for a second and do what Paul's saying and to wake up. But how do we wake up? I drink a lot of coffee. I go on runs. I take ice baths. I'm, it doesn't wake me up spiritually. I mean, it freaks me out. Like my physical body's messed up after that. But like, I can't wake, that does not wake me up spiritually. And to be honest, we have to snap out of this way of thinking. And I think one of the ways that we can do that is by waking up. So how do we actually wake up and become aware of our activity regarding the world, the flesh, and the devil? And so to do that, I think it's really important that we ask ourselves a series of important questions. And before I share with you these questions, these are not judgmental questions towards yourself. These are questions that you ask yourself with the Spirit. You invite the Spirit. You say, God, what is this about? And is any of this true in me? These are questions of discovery, not shame. These are for you to understand where you're at and where you need to go, not always keeping a record of wrong. So I just want to make that clear. So here's some questions that I've been asking myself. And get ready. They're painful. They're very painful. But there's seven of them, and you can write them down. I'll leave them. So the first one is, uh, in what ways, obvious or subtle, am I trying to be my own Savior? So first kind of discovery question. Where are you trying to white knuckle your faith and just like hold on when Jesus is saying, would you just trust me to run the world and your life and all the things that I've said I could run? So in what ways, obvious or subtle? And I think that's important. There's some obvious ways and there are some subtle. Second question, I think we all need to ask ourselves. How much of life am I doing on human energy alone? How much of life are you just saying, I've got this, it really comes down to my ability, my strength, my authority, my reach, my planning, all the stuff. Like, where is that for you? Thirdly, 
How much time do I spend in a day thinking about my own status and importance? They just get more uncomfortable from here. Do you want me to stop? I could just stop. I, they, they just get worse. I, I, I was writing these questions down, and I was like, they all hurt, they all hurt, and they just get worse the whole way down. Um, but how much time in the day do you do, you do that? How, how concerned are you about your own status and importance or perceived importance by others? You are important. God loves you, cares for you. You are a wonderful child of God. A spiritual discipline I'm learning about this week is called self-care. And I have to be honest, I like even was having a hard time reading it because I'm like, I don't need self-care. I'm fine. I'm totally taking care of myself. And I started reading it. And I was like, oh, I am not taking care of myself at all. Um, but just the reminder that God cares for you and values you so, so much. He's just so delighted to be with you. Like, isn't that a gift? Fourth one, how much do I justify and prioritize my own personal gratification? I told you, it just gets worse. Uh, I justify and prioritize my own personal gratification. One thing I hear a lot or I tell myself is, it's okay. I, I need this. Life's hard. How often do we do that, right? And again, this isn't judgmental. This is discovery. Is your personal gratification more important than those who you have a responsibility to love, which is to biblically will the good of the other? If your gratification takes over the love that you're prioritized already and committed to, there's a, there's a disconnect there. Fifthly, how much do I pray about what worries me? You guys remember Philippians, always a great reminder here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by a few things, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Be specific is the idea there. Sixthly, how much of my own life have I taken into my hands and blame others for the negative outcomes? Another way to say that is how many life decisions have you made that didn't go well and you either blame God or a person because it just didn't go like you hoped. And then uh, seventh, the last one. How has entitlement and feeling sorry for myself impacted where I am today? The idea there is you feeling owed something, not getting the thing that you feel owed, then feeling sorry for yourself, making your life situation harder, and getting mad at other people. That's what that means. Life is hard. I don't pretend that it's not. But these questions specifically are discovery type questions. God, am I, am I being entitled? Am I feeling sorry for myself? Am I making my own situation worse? And you know the coolest thing is? God doesn't say, yeah, stop. Change your attitude. Like, no, he just simply says, if it is true, it says, yeah. And let me help you like, do a different, like, live a different way. That's the character of God. These questions just simply help us peel back the layers of our own cognitive dissonance that we, we can live in and where we unfortunately and unintentionally deceive ourselves. Sometimes we're being deceived, but sometimes we deceive ourselves. And Paul is giving us a way of being that Jesus taught is the truest reality that we can trust. Don't be deceived and don't deceive yourself. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked, right? You've heard that verse. A man reaps what he sows. So we need to be vigilant, and these questions just help wake us up. More than an ice bath, more than like eight shots of coffee, it actually wakes us up to the inner world of what's going on in your soul. So how do we actually 
become more aware of that. Let, let me just, how do you apply these questions? Let me just give you one idea or suggestion. I would just encourage you to take a long morning if you can find one this week or a quiet place in an afternoon and prayerfully answer these questions. Just invite the Holy Spirit. Be honest in your responses, no matter how challenging the answer. And this doesn't have to be something you invite other people with, in, into. It can be just between you and God, but you can also bring a trusted friend or a spouse into it. So we need to ask ourselves some honest questions. We need to know what to do. If genuine faith, which it does, produces our desire to work on our faith with God, how do we stay connected to the Spirit? So uh, Paul later gives us an answer to this. And I don't know about you, but I, I can easily get to this space of like saying, okay, so what are we supposed to do with all this, right? Like Paul says, what am I supposed to do? And Paul just says this really quick in Galatians 5, again, same chapter as the answer to his rhetorical questions. 5 verse 16 says, As you yield to the dynamic life and power of the Holy Spirit, which we're talking about, you will abandon the cravings of your self-life. So he's giving us the answer. How do you actually do this? When you walk in step with the Spirit, you abandon these deep cravings. Anyone ever detox from sugar? That's a bear. Like, that's, I know what that feels like. That's all I think of when I see that. Uh, <laughs> when your self-life craves, or sugar cravings, whatever, self-life craves the things that offend the Holy Spirit, you hinder him from living free within you. And the Holy Spirit's intense cravings actually do the opposite. They hinder your self-life from dominating you. And the Holy Spirit's intense crave. oh, I already read that. So then, the two incompatible and conflicting forces within you are the self-life or the flesh and the new creation life of the Spirit. Just like the story of the woman sitting in the New York hospital experiencing cognitive dissonance, we have two incompatible, conflicting forces. What are we supposed to do if we really want to walk in full success with Jesus? Paul says we have to walk in the Spirit to live this out fully. So I would just like to suggest in closing, I would like to suggest a, a few specific ways on how we can walk in the Spirit this week. I love ideas, but I love actually trying things. I love practicing. I love doing. So uh, this is for all you doers who are like, thank you for the ideas. What am I supposed to do? Or, or give me something to like try. So I'll give you a couple things for this week, okay? Um, there's a few spe specific spiritual disciplines that I think really help wake us up and help us walk in the Spirit. And the two I want to highlight today, um, the first one is examine, the spiritual discipline of examine. And you've heard of this before, maybe the prayer of examine. But I want to just highlight a couple things with this specific spiritual discipline um, that's really important and even more than just prayer. Because the desire of this discipline is to slow down and to notice both God and my God-given desires throughout the day. Now, I can admit, I have non-God-given desires throughout the day. Anybody else? Yeah, but I also have God desires too. I'm like, I want to do that more. I want to be more involved. And it's to slow down and find out and differentiate from each one. A good definition of the discipline of examine is a practice for discerning the voice and activity of God within the flow of the day. It's a vehicle that creates deeper awareness, again, the waking up, like Paul's talking about, of God-given desires in your life. So examine, or the prayer of examine, allows the Holy Spirit to take a flashlight into the cave of our souls and examine with us what is truly there. Anyone been in a cave lately. I don't know about you, 
uh, I've went in a cave a couple times, like, as a kid, like, it was a, I think it was a um, middle school retreat or something. They're like, let's go in this cave and have flashlights. And all I could keep thinking of was all those kids that got trapped in a cave. And I was like, this is the end of my life. I'm, I'm going to this cave. I'm never coming out. And every time I think about that, that idea, like, it's the Holy Spirit's flashlight in the cave of your soul. I'm like, this is terrifying. Like, I don't like this. Like, there's a lot of dark, scary things down there. And I'd say that's actually true, and I think it's really important with the spiritual discipline of examine to remember you are not just criticizing yourself. You're not sitting there going, where have I been really bad? Where have I been really good? And how can I just do better on my own strength? That's exactly what Paul is saying don't do. He's actually saying, how can you slow down and say, Holy Spirit, what do you want to highlight? In a cave, there's a lot of activity, but a flashlight can only highlight a few things at a time. And so you ask the Holy Spirit, what needs highlighting? What is the thing in me that's just like, you really want to shine this perspective on? It allows us to be honest with ourselves and our circumstances, our relationships, and really, honestly, our whole life. It keeps us connected with what's real. So practically, what does this look like? Uh, the examine provides a way of us noting where God shows up in our day. So it's a practice that helps us just slow down and look at our pressures and our duties and our responsibilities and our busyness and just go, oh, like, here you are, God. And the question uh, of the examine, it opens our attention. So let me just give you a, a couple ways in which you can, can do this. You can find a time in the morning. Uh, I have a friend that once a week on Saturdays uh, sets, a, sets a time like two hours aside because that's when he has time. And he does a prayer of examine for the week. He just asks the Holy Spirit, where have I been connected with you? Where have I been off? Where have I been uh, lacking, right? I know for me, it, it looks like uh, slipping outside at night after all the kids are in bed uh, and, and asleep. When they go to bed and when they're asleep are hours apart. So uh, it's when they're sleeping. That's the rule. It's like everyone sleeps. My wife's so tired because obviously if you've ever been around four kids all day, like that will, that will take it, right? That will, that will make you tired. So she's sleeping, all the kids are sleeping and I sneak outside and I just have this block and I ask myself a handful of questions. Not because I'm so godly, but because I'm so desperate. Because honestly, this practice for me has opened up my eyes to see how much God is actually working in my day. Have you ever asked that question? We're like, are you there, God? Totally. He's totally there. You're just obviously very distracted, which I am chief of being distracted. But when we do this, it can make sense of things like our insomnia or our nervous stomach or why that interaction was so difficult and why do I have this headache? And it gives an honest way for us to deeply depend and lean on God to make sense of what's going on in our lives. It helps us recognize the things that bring us death and the things that bring us life. How many things are on your to-do list that just bring death and you still do them? Some of them you can't, like responsibility, I get that. But I'm talking about like how many things do you do that are more about status and how you appear and like all the things that we feel like we're supposed to do. They bring death, not life. So once these things are known, we can become a part of God's interactive relationship through prayer with what's going on in our life. So here's a few questions that you can ask yourself this week in regards to the prayer of examine or the practice of examine. Just three quick questions. For what moment today am I most grateful? I love this question because it forces you to not be super negative. There's gotta be something, even if it's one thing. What moment today am I most grateful? Secondly, what moment today am I least grateful? 
What was the hardest part of today? What was the stuff that you were just so disappointed, discouraged? And can I be honest? Like some days my grateful list is long. Most days my least grateful list is much longer. When I, uh, then the last question, when did I give and receive the most love today? And that's a really interesting question because that forces us to be honest about the kind of person we're being. Were you just so anxious all day that you couldn't give or receive love? You were just a bear to be around. Like it was just like, it would be better if you were in a different place, right? Where were you? And, and again, this isn't judgmental. It's like, why is that going on? And then the spirit like, Wait, just try this. This is so fun. Like the spirit literally just goes, hey, maybe it's because you're trying to run your own life and not trust me with the things that I've asked you to trust me with again. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. We can do this with the power of the spirit. He can do it. So that's the first thing. If you're a person that likes to do, practice this, the discipline of examine. And the other spiritual discipline, then we'll close, is, uh, is contemplation. Now, if that word scares you or you don't understand it, please hang in with me for a few minutes. I will make sense of this. Obviously, in one sense, we can understand what the word contemplation means. In another sense, I want to make clear what I mean by this and what I think the scripture means by this. So contemplation, the spiritual discipline of that. The desire of the spiritual discipline is to wake up to the presence of God in all things. That in this moment, and when you go to lunch, and when you hopefully take a nap, somebody, please, uh, you take a nap in the afternoon, like there's the presence of God and he can be in all things, in all situations. When you're sitting down playing a game with your kids, or they go outside to jump on a mini trampoline, praise God, and you have like two minutes to like think, you're like, yes, there's something there. But the definition here of this, uh, of contemplation, is about waking up. To be contemplative is to experience an event fully in all of its aspects. And this is what Paul is telling us to do. He's telling us to wake up. So if you're a person that's like, what do I do this week? How do I wake up? Become a contemplative person. One of the first things we have to do is wake up. And contemplation is just one tool. Uh, St. Francis de Sales says this, several times during the day, ask yourself, for a moment, if you have your soul in your hands or if some passion or fit of anxiety has robbed it from you. I love that. And he says this, quietly bring your soul back to the presence of God Subject all your affections and desires to the obedience and direction of his divine will. It's a great example of what it looks like to contemplate. Has there been any passion or anxiety that's robbed my soul from me today? Hold on, like, Jesus, please forgive me, or I need to change my thinking, here we go. I, I submit my life to your divine will. Because the truth is that we are usually hasty people that are bent on experiencing as much of life as we can, aren't we? I love experiencing life. The faster we move, the more we can see, the more we can do and produce, most times we do it. If you have the option, you will usually do more. That's why like massive media companies or just companies in general, the really big tech companies understand that they don't have to give you vacation. They give you unlimited vacation knowing that you'll take almost none. You realize that? Is that crazy? We tend to think the more that we network, the more options will be ours. The more options, then we think the more living we can do. Anybody know what trap I'm talking about? This weird trap that we all get caught in? For many of us, if we're being honest, the notion of slowing down or saying no to an option feels almost repulsive. It feels like I can't even fathom that. So instead, what do we do? We usually crowd our schedules. We run late. We're frantic at the phonetic pace of life. We're being ran. We're not running. Simply put, I really do think contemplation has fallen on hard times. 
And I think if we can actually learn to grow in this, we might actually have some incredibly powerful insights with the Spirit. And if I'm being honest, before I move on to what this actually looks like, uh, contemplation seems to be inefficient and too unproductive. Like, I have to slow down and take time and think? That does not sound productive. Like, I've got things to do, right? And so I can just, I just want to say that to say I understand that this feels jarring. But isn't that the way of Jesus? That in many ways the way to life is, is often not exactly what it seems on the surface. The way of Jesus brings life, but it doesn't come in the same ways that the world says life comes. So I want to suggest some practical ways this week to bring this practice. A few ways. Oh, first, contemplate Jesus this week. Contemplate Jesus. What, I'd encourage the, what I would encourage you to do is intentionally place yourself in the presence of God. Find a, a sliver of time in the morning, the afternoon, the evening, whenever you can, and try to become quiet. And express to God your intention to rest. So just be like, I'm here. I'm thinking about you. You don't even have to have like a long to-do list. You can just sit. If you're like, no, I need something to do, you can take a contemplative walk with Jesus. Express your intention to be alone with God. Now, I know some of you are like, what? You can do this? Yes, you really can, and it's actually great. You can enjoy the process of moving your body and smelling the air, like junipers in the air. That's great. I lived in L.A. for a long time. Uh, didn't smell so great there. Did not love that portion of the, the practice there. But you can take in the sights. You can appreciate God's handiwork inside of you and, and outside. You slow down and you contemplate Jesus. Secondly, uh, you can contemplate people. Set aside time to really look into the eyes of those you love. God has given you people in your life that love you. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> like people like actually like you. And they've decided to commit parts or their whole life to you. That's bizarre. I know some of you. Like it's crazy to me. We love this. I'm saying this first. I, know, I understand the fact that anyone would care and commit their life. It's a gift, right? So we listen and we look into their eyes. We have a good meal with them and we appreciate them. An option with that is uh, if you like to journal or write a note, write down what you think the Spirit's speaking or, or just write down what you love about that person and what's mysterious to you about them. Even consider giving it to them, giving a note to them if that's what makes sense. And lastly, uh, contemplate your experience. Another thing you can do this week is just literally pick an experience. It could be a meal. It could be a conversation. It could be putting your kids to bed. It could be a, a, at work. But commit yourself to remaining present to an experience and just pay attention to any feelings that rise in you. And this is really fun and uncomfortable. I'll just be completely honest. Like, when, when I, have you ever talked to somebody and you're having this conversation and it just starts bringing up all this stuff within you? And you're like, I feel like really hot and sweaty and confused right now. And, and then I'm like getting really impatient. And then I'm becoming like embarrassed. And you might feel like, oh, I need to hide or defend. But the, the whole point is to ask yourself, what's going on here? Just let those feelings be there. It's to ask the spirit afterwards, like, what's going on? Like, what's going on in me that is making this rise up? Where did I respond out of past wounds? And when did I, what did I experience that, that was like significant for me in that moment? What gave that moment or that thing meaning, right? So we just start the process of asking ourselves these questions. Now, that's just a few ways. Contemplating Jesus, contemplating people, contemplating experience. Now, for some of you, this may feel like way out of left field. You might say, like, I'm not doing 
any of this. And I'm not coming back. And that's okay. We love you anyway. We still want you to come back. But the point is I can respect that this feels foreign to some. But I just want to challenge you with something. You wouldn't be sitting here right now unless you actually wanted to connect with God or his people in some greater way. Most people don't come to church for that. You can get this in so many other places. So I'm going to assume that you're here because in some way you want to connect with a person or with God in a greater way. So I want to give you courage. Encouragement is to give someone courage. Would you just try one of these things? Go on a walk. Incorporate something within your day that is not normal and begin to invite Jesus to wake up to your reality of where you're at with him. I know this is the third time I've said that we're ending, but we really are this time. Uh, to end, I just really want to bring a simple story to mind. There's a story in Matthew 14, um, and it's the story of John the Baptist's death. And I'm sure you've heard it or at least read it before, but I'll summarize it really quickly. Um, if you remember, Herod, who is the king, has John the Baptist arrested. He throws him in prison. And then Herod is throwing this party, and his friend comes over. And his friend has a daughter. We don't know the age of this girl, but all we know is that basically uh, they were hosting this dinner party and his friend's daughter starts dancing and it pleased him so much that he promised to give her anything she asked. This is incredibly awkward. Anyone else? Like, you're, like this is, if anyone doesn't think the Bible's weird, sometimes the Bible is weird sometimes. Like read the Old Testament. Read, like I don't understand why this is in there. But this girl who knows her age She's smart, and she goes, I'm going to ask my mom what she thinks I should do. The king said I could have anything. I should ask my mom. And so she asks, and the mom says, oh, just ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. So intense, so violent, so brutal. Now, I'm sure you're wondering where I'm going with all this. I'm like, Why are you telling us this story? Just trying to encourage you as much at the end as I was at the beginning. Um, <laughs> so the girl's... The girl's mom said, hey, please, like, give us this. And after this tragedy, after this thing took place, this event, Jesus' disciples were searching for him, and they found him, Matthew 14 says. They found him, and they told him that his beloved friend had been killed, and, and in the brutal way in which he was killed. And the very next line, after they tell him what happened, is incredibly shocking to me and proves just how much we don't understand God's kingdom. And, and this is the phrase. When Jesus heard what had happened about his friend, John the Baptist, he withdrew by a boat privately to a solitary place. He didn't freak out. He didn't scream in agony. It simply says he quietly withdrew. He got in a boat and he went to a solitary place. In Luke chapter 5, there's another crazy set of circumstances. And it was said of Jesus, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. In the Greek, this verse actually translated was regularly withdrawing and praying. Jesus' response to terrible, tragic, frustrating, hard things was to get alone and to pray. And if that formula is good enough for Jesus, I really think it's good enough for us. And if there's one thing you can do this week, I know you can do that. Because we make time for what matters most to us, don't we? So the question really becomes, what matters most to you? Not as a guilt trip. I'm not saying like, pray more, read more. I, I, I get nothing out of this. You do. And what I would love to see is your life flourish. And here's what I've learned in my small brief time of following Jesus. 
which is basically my whole life. Um, when I pray and when I submit to his spirit and when I actually step into quiet space and listen, crazy things happen. Whether it's in my life or in other people's lives, they just don't add up. What adds up is that when I do this, crazy stuff happens. When I don't, crazy stuff doesn't. So you can take that scientific formula and you can spread it however you want. But the point is we do have time for this. And you are going to be so thankful that the Spirit is taking the time to wake you up. And whatever your process is, if this takes years, he'll wait. If you want to wait for five to ten more years and just kind of burn through time, he'll wait. That's the craziest thing. I so wish sometimes that God would just jump in and take over. But he doesn't. He's so kind. He says, hey, I'll wait for you. We are built to live in the kingdom of God. It is our natural habitat. So if you feel like you're living in a different world and you're not thriving, chances are it's because you're not operating in a way that is living in the kingdom of God. And all I would encourage you to do is to do what Paul did. Wake up. Remember that this is right here for you. And you don't have to create the desire or the passion. The fact that you have the desire to pray proves that God's spirit's in you. The fact that you're sitting here in church proves that God's doing stuff in you. The fact that you desire or sense that there's a disconnect between you and God proves that his spirit is active within you. So don't get hung up on the fact that you're not where you want to be yet. That's okay. This is a process. Start living the way you were designed and experience freedom. That's the message. That's what Paul wants to tell you today. So with that, let's stand and let's pray. There's a lot of different ways in which we can end, but I would just love to uh, take a few moments to just pray and, and uh, honestly just reflect on a few things. In a moment, the tables are going to be open and we're going to take the bread and the cup. But in the meantime, uh, we just want to slow down and ask Spirit, what is it that you want to say to us? Your church, say to us collectively. What is it you want to say to us Individually, We're individuals that make up a body. So we recognize there's a collective speaking and also an individual speaking. We do this in community today. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would please highlight in us the arenas and the places where you want to wake us up. I thank you for your gentle, kind, loving, affectionate, patient voice and presence with us that doesn't push us or prod it gently guides. And so I simply ask that throughout this day and throughout this week and even in this moment that you would bubble to the surface by your spirit that which we need to wake up in and the areas in which you want us to just be more present to you and where we need to step into greater faith. So Father, we, we thank you that you're doing this and I just ask that throughout this afternoon, throughout this evening that all of us in this space would experience that wonderful, warm, caring love that comes when you speak. This wouldn't be possible without the cross, without the gift that you died in our place. And so, Father, we thank you for the gift of the cross. We thank you for the bread, the cup, the Eucharist, which we get to celebrate in a moment. It is because of that that we can have the power of the Holy Spirit 
with living within us to live out this life, to honor you, to glorify you. So that's what we want to do. So in this moment, Father, continue to speak, continue to move, open our minds and our hearts to your activity.